welcome to episode 21 of the Analytically Speaking podcast series. This episode will discuss the world of reference materials used for spectroscopic measurements around the globe. I'm Jerry Workman, the Senior Technical Editor of Spectroscopy and your podcast host. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for a deeper look into all things measured with light. Spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation, commonly referred to as light, with matter. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Art Springsteen of Avian Technologies, located in New London, New Hampshire, who for several decades has been active in creating and manufacturing many of the reflectance standard materials broadly used to calibrate instruments for wavelength and photometric accuracy, as well as for accurate color measurements. We have invited Art to our Analytically Speaking podcast to discuss his research and experience on the development and manufacturing of standards used for many aspects of calibration for spectroscopic instruments. Well, Art, thank you for joining us today. Jerry, thanks for inviting me. Well, Art, tell our audience a little about your history in exploring reflectant standards for use in calibrating spectroscopy instruments, and that would be for ultraviolet, visible, near-infrared, infrared, and color measurement systems. Um, I started measure, making standards measurements in an odd way. When I started at LabSphere, which was a company that mostly uh, dealt with measurement of light directly, we sold a three-piece, quote, quote, standard set that consists of two packed PTFE standards, a packed barium sulfate standards, and a really pathetic little light trap. Uh, these were measured on a homebrew uh, spectrophotometer, which consisted of a spectro-oriel monochromator, which was hand-cranked, a tungsten halogen source, and a small integrating sphere uh, with a number of ports. And we measured at five nanometer increments from 360 to 830 nanometers. Uh, this lovely uh, instrument took about two hours to do a single measurement. Soon thereafter, uh, I was developing some uh, grayscale standards based on some work uh, done at NBS by Vic Widener and Jack Shaw. Um, these were basically uh, carbon black and PTFE and sintered. Um, and uh, what you got was a very stable uh, grayscale that were uh, potentially good artifact standards. Uh, we needed something that was a bit more sophisticated than that uh, homebrew instrument. So I contacted a fellow by the name of Jeff Taylor at Perkin Elmer, or maybe they contacted me about a UV Viz NIR high accuracy spectrophotometer. We purchased one with a 60 millimeter integrating sphere and off we went. But we really needed a 150 millimeter sphere to meet the ASDM and CIE specifications for color measurements. And the PE design didn't match the design criteria needed. And that got us started in the um, integrating sphere for spectrophotometer uh, business. And also the the standards business. Uh, that was a huge investment at the time for a small company that didn't have a lot of money or a lot of people. Well, that's an, that's a, a fascinating story. I didn't know most of that. Um, why do you think standard reference materials are important when using spectroscopic instruments? While most double beam instruments don't really require standards, industrial processes and medical devices are typically single beam. 
which require a standard to measure the drift of the sources and optics. So it's good to be able to know that your instrument is measuring accurately in either transmittance or reflectance mode. So accurate and proper standards are really essential, much more so in reflectance than transmittance. That makes a lot of sense. The single beam is is the key issue there. Yes. And so what's the standard reference material, also known as an SRM, and what's unique about the standards you create as compared to, for example, an SRM from NIST or NRC? You asked what a standard re- reference material was. Um, it's any material that can be used to assure that an instrument is within proper measurement parameters and is within calibration. To do this, the standard has to be stable, reproducible, and able to meet the optical and geometrical parameters of the instrument and have similar optical properties to what is typically measured on that instrument. Uh, What's unique about our standards? Well, to be perfectly honest, not much. NRC doesn't provide artifact standards. Uh, NIST, to my knowledge, is currently the only uh, NMI that does. Uh, NMI mean a na- a National Metrological Institute. Uh, there are other NMIs that provide, uh, provide artifact standards, but they typically purchase them from commercial outfits like us or Starner or Helma. For example, the National Lab of Mexico, the National Labs of Mexico and India get their standard filters from us, uh, and we calibrate them, and then they pass them on to their customers. Uh, we try, we take our lead on standards from what customers ask us to do, and always have, and have an NMI who's able to provide the measurements to give us something to make our measurements traceable. Oh, that's 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 a good uh, summary of that. Well, what are some of the key features required for an accurate standard reference material or just reference material in general? There are really four things. One, they need to be stable. They need to be durable. Uh, they need to be reproducible, which can be a problem. And there also has to be a need. I mean, we've developed some really cool standards over the years, uh, only to find out that nobody needed them or nobody wanted them. <laughs> Uh, and then there's the ability to maintain a supply of the materials. Now, I'll go into that a little later. There's a, an issue right now about one of the normally used reflectance standards uh, in many of the NMIs and, and a lot of the industrial labs um, because of sources of that material changing. Uh, that is an issue. So how do you design and test a, re- a reference material? Really? Uh, typically what we do is if we get a customer who needs a, a special standard, we find out from them the conditions under which they're going to be used, um, whether it's going to be stable under those conditions, and if we can go to a national laboratory and have these materials measured for the first time to make them a uh, usable and marketable standard. Okay. Um, so what are the, some of the challenges you've experienced over the years in making useful standards? 
we've had some interesting things that people have asked us to do with standards. Uh, one of the things is to be, it was to match uh, the color of uh, sugar in various stages of purification. And uh, it's a very subtle change in shade of white to brown or, you know, depending on the molasses concentration and things like that. And because of the way we make our standards, where they're processed at high temperature to get stability, um, we can't use inorganic pigments. So we have to use uh, organic salts and things like that, inorganic salts and things like that. Um, we've also been asked to do things like matching ketchup and tiles, um, flesh tones, things like that. And the spectral matches are, are very, very difficult to do. Uh, it's not so bad to get a visible match, but it's very difficult to get a spectral match. Um, an interesting one was that uh, we had a, a, a customer uh, who wanted to match um, the spectral uh, structure of pig feed. This, is, uh, this was an EU mandate, and that had all sorts of, you know, in matching protein, fat, moisture, using inorganic materials is, is very difficult. And uh, we managed to actually get it pretty well, but it took months to do that. And in fact, we even got a patent on the thing. And um, we made that for this customer for years. Uh, then we had another one where we were looking for an online standard to measure the water level in something called sugar beet bry, which is what happens if you take uh, sugar beets and mush them up with water and uh, you, you need to get the moisture levels to a certain point before you can crystallize the sugar out. Well, I came up with a way of using a, a polyacrylamide, uh, potassium polyacrylate material that held water beautifully. It's what you use to keep uh, plant cuttings alive. And I thought I was a clever guy doing this. And my, um, my partner in this process was a fellow by the name of Ian Coe from from Foss, and he says, and he's a good Scotsman. So he said, I can do that much easier. I can use oatmeal, and lo and behold, oatmeal works beautifully, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> so, in general, you're saying you have to use inorganic materials for most of these stable standards over time. That that is true. Uh, I mean, you know, the sugar ones, I guess you could use, but Things like sugars oxidize or ferment or things like that, and they change. And the inorganic salts don't, um, especially after they've been treated. Uh, you know, if you make them into a glass, they're stable to many, many hundreds of degrees. If if they're in uh, PTFE and centered, they're stable to a couple hundred degrees. Um, that's the that's the thing. You need the stability. So what does that mean to be in a PTFE and sintered? What, what is that oh, process? PTFE is, is Teflon powder. 
And uh, the way the standards are made is you do mixing of the inorganic pigments uh, with the PTFE. And uh, it's, it's really not chemistry. What it is is cooking. Uh, you, you mix this stuff up with a uh, high shear mixer, which in our case happens to be a Cuisinart food processor. And it works beautifully and it has for 30 years. Uh, and then you press them to a certain density and then you center the material. And, you know, it takes a number of tries, but, you know, you, you once you get the material, it can be machined to shape um, and uh, the surface can be uh, made diffuse. And then you measure it and you see what you got and then you just make um changes in the formulation to get what you need so then you actually add um high pressure and then you cook cook it for a while uh actually not high pressure you pr you press it to a density that it just holds together oh and then you, then you cook it then you cook it yeah and you don't you don't cook it under pressure and oh. um you know it, it comes out very nice and uh, if you cook it under pressure, what happens is that the uh, material no longer is lambertian. It doesn't scatter well. It, it tends to be much more translucent and uh, not a good reflector. Oh, good information. So what, what are some of the projects that really stand out as being the most difficult or memorable? Are there any other ones than those you've talked about? Uh, not that I can talk about. <laughs> Not that you can talk about. Okay. Yeah. It's all classified. There, there are uh, a number of classified ones, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's good. Um, so what are some of your all-time favorite books or papers that cover the aspects of reference materials and their different applications? Well, the one that got me started was a, a paper by Wolfgang Buda from um, the National Research Council Canada. It was in applied optics. Uh, in the early 70s uh, on the use of integrating spheres in reflectance spectroscopy. It was applied optics paper. Then Grumman Saltzman, uh, the proceedings of the CIE, uh, had some good work on uh, diffuse standards. And of course, the, the NIST volume 250 uh, on reflectance spectroscopy, I think it's volume 46. Uh, was a lot of the work of uh, uh, Shaw and uh, um, Widener, um, which is what really got me started on that. Well, if you send us a few of those uh, references, um, just to a note to our listeners is that in the podcast notes, we have a list of multiple references that are referred to here. I will add um, that. I will add stuff to that, yeah. Okay, and we'll put those in there for all of the listeners. So um, what scientific committees or groups are the best to be involved at or be in contact with for detailed information on specifications and applications on reference standards? Uh, ASTM E12 and E13 uh, are the major ones uh, in the United States. And then there are a number of CIE committees. Uh, most of the work uh, on the applications and specifications 
uh, are done at the National Metro Metrological Labs. And, and NIST is the primary one. Uh, there are a number of people at NIST, uh, Aaron Urbis and Steve Chiquette in chemistry, uh, Maria Nadal and Catherine Cooksey in physics. Uh, the National Physical Laboratory in the UK used to be very involved in standards. Uh, unfortunately, uh, both John Verrill and George Freeman, who were my major contacts there, have passed away. Uh, Joanne Zwinkles at National Research Council Canada has been heavy, heavily involved in standards. Uh, she's since retired. And then at the Bundesanstalt in Germany, Klaus Witt uh, was heavily involved in diffuse reflectance and fluorescence. Uh, and all these people uh, furthered what I had been doing for years. Oh, that's a that's an interesting list. We'll try to put together the best references we uh, list we can for the the listeners. So you've contributed to and published many articles and book chapters on this subject of reference materials, and we've listed some of those in our reference and further reading sections for this podcast, so people can refer to that. Um, in your opinion, what is still lacking in either the available standards or publications on the subject of reference standards? Um, there's very, there's been very little published on references for uh, BRDF and BTDF. That's bi bidirectional reflectance distribution function and bidirectional transmittance distribution function, which are basically looking at um, instead of an integrated reflectance or transmittance looking at uh, reflectance and transmittance versus incident angle and collection angle, which is very important for uh, materials that are Lambertian or near to Lambertian. Uh, the other is, and I think you mentioned this uh, somewhere along the line, uh, potential Raman standards. Um, NIST was doing some Raman standards and came up with a couple glasses for use, but they didn't seem to catch on. Uh, there are, there's definitely a need for diffuse transmittance standards. It's hardly addressed anywhere. Um, the ones that have been made were only made uh, for non-spectral measurements. Uh, well, I think spectral, uh, trans spectral diffuse transmittance is something that hasn't been addressed at all. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so there's still quite a bit to do. Yeah, because um, most uh, natural products um, scatter, and um, they you're looking at spectral, you're looking at spectral. You want spectral data, and uh, you can't necessarily find it. Are there limitations on how useful reference standards can be? Uh, for example when measuring fluorescence materials or other things like emission, like Raman? Oh, very much so. Um, I mean, we make fluorescence standards uh, mostly for the paper and textile industries. Um, these, are, these are very curious. Uh, our competitors are uh, AATCC, the American Association for Textile Chemists and Colorists, there's the standards that they make are literally sheets of paper. Um, and it used to be paper that had been sitting in a closet <laughs> that was optically brightened. And they used that. They thought it was stable. And 
they cut it up into little pieces and they sell little pads of these papers and uh, they just, you use them once and throw them away. Um, we have a competitor that uses an optical brightened uh, doped plastic. Uh, we use acrylic. They use melamines. They have a finite lifetime, whereas the papers are used once and discard. Um, stability is always a problem with fluorescent materials, which tend to degrade over time. You talked a little bit about ramen reference materials. Have you ever tried that or any emission type? type materials uh well i mean we've done uh fluorescent materials with specific uh excitation emission profiles yeah okay um you're limited there to uh at least for us we were limited as to things that were stable uh above 360 degrees celsius there are lots and lots of uh organic fluorophores and those can be used just as is not putting them in a carrier the ramen stuff and, and this is embarrassing the reason we haven't done ramen standards is frankly uh, i don't understand ramen spectroscopy <laughs> and i've had any number of friends who are real expert in the field to try to explain it to me and f for some reason i just don't get it <laughs> okay Versus FTIR and FT and IR and stuff like that. Uh, sure. Ramen is just uh, uh, Swahili to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, along these lines, there's been a lot of near-infrared standards made. Um, what What's your experience with those? They're wavelength and reflection mostly, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I mean, a lot of stuff for uh, wavelength calibration standards. The initial one that was used uh, was NIS SRM 1920, which was just a mixture of three rare earth oxides packed in a cell and uh, measured. And, and it covered the, the UV-Vis NIR range pretty well, except everything ended at 2,010 nanometers. And if you wanted to go beyond that, you well, there were a couple couple potential solutions. The easiest one was to use um, just a polystyrene window to get you the peaks between uh, twenty one hundred and twenty five hundred, and then in the mid two thousands, uh, the folks at NIST came up with uh, NIST uh, SRM twenty thirty five, which was a mixed rare earth oxide glass that had a number of peaks throughout the, the viz near IR. And if you put a uh, piece of fluorolon or other high-reflectance diffuse material behind it, your transmittance standard became a reflectance standard. So that became SRM 2036. And then we came up with the idea of putting a polystyrene window in front of that, and that got, that pushed the range out to uh, 20, 2,500 nanometers. What else was there? Oh, there have been a lot. Uh, we've tried any number of rare earth oxides behind, beside the initial ones, which were holmium, erbium, and dysprosium. But they, they had some issues. 
there's a, there's a way of making these without sintering them by using extremely high pressure. Uh, and you can put in things like uh, melamine or talc or something like that to add other peaks. And these work very well. Uh-huh. That's, uh, that's a good, good information. And is there like an official discussion about the con any controversy surrounding the use of or limitations of reference standards? Yeah, and and, and it, this is this is one that ASTM has been working on for oh fifteen years or so. And in fact, I I headed the committee and um, I gave up. <laughs> and it it was it's been taken over by Catherine Quixie of NIST. What has happened is that the original standard for use of PTFE as a PAC PTFE as a an artifact standard uh, for diffuse reflectance um, has well. What happened was that the original material that was used became unavailable. And since then, there have been a number of changes in manufacturers uh, that, uh, while they were supposedly identical, uh, all the PTFEs were supposedly identical, they weren't. And um, now the third iteration of this uh, has come up that the material is quite different enough to give you significant changes in the reflectance based on the PTFE, the compressed PTFE standard. I mean, there, there are um, methods of making this. I mean, you, you press it to a, a specific density um, with a specific surface structure but the new material doesn't match what was originally put out by Widener and Shaw back in the early 80s. And consequently, all measurements based on these are no longer as accurate as a national laboratory would like. Mm -hmm. That's it's interesting, and you said this has been discussed uh, these issues for five zero years no, or one five, one five years? years. Oh no, it's one more five. than that. Okay, um, it's okay. it's more like twenty years. Okay. Um, is specialized software required for using reference standards? Um, typically, no. I typically the wavelength calibration in instruments is built into the instrument software. Um, or it's used as an add-on either as an artifact that's supplied with the instrument or as part of the instrument. Uh, for example, uh, the commercial UV-Vis UV NIR instruments uh, use uh, the deuterium line that they use as a source for the UV. Uh, they use first and second order overtones to, to give you um, very sharp peaks. And you can um, you can cal you calibrate the internal calibration is done off of them uh, with FTIR is done with a laser uh, that sort of thing. But the, do you find yeah. that 
go ahead. Oh, do you find that most instrument manufacturers are just adjusting one or two positions, or are they actually modifying the spectrum to fit, um, you know, maybe half a dozen or a dozen uh, wavelength positions? Uh, typically, they do one or two. Okay. Um, well, can you tell our audience, sort of in closing, um, is there a big secret about using standard reference materials or other reference materials for measurements? Uh, is there what's what's behind the scenes? Absolutely. Keep your standards clean, keep them well maintained, and on a regular recalibration schedule. Uh, I mean, we get standards back for recalibration that literally have had tire tracks on them, uh, footprints, that sort of thing. <laughs> and if you don't keep your standards maintained, uh, and well-documented, the big bad wolves from ISO, CIE, and your quality lab will be after you. So how does someone get um, their reference standards um, measured on a routine basis? Uh, we, we're fairly typical of, of most labs in that we have, oh, I think we, we send about, out about six or eight standards every year for recalibration uh, to, a, to an NMI. We, we happen to use uh, National Research Council of Canada uh, because they're quick and less expensive than this. Um, but you do need to uh, keep your, your own standards in calibration. And then check, uh, you check the calibration of your instrument, you know, on whatever your your quality system says our quality system says we check them every time we turn the instrument on so uh that's the sort of thing yes well um art do you have any other things that you might want to tell our listeners related to reference materials or standards that they may not have heard about uh anything else yeah i mean over the years um We've written on um, the different types of standards. Uh, we've only today talked about the, the few standards and touched on transmittance standards. Uh, but the, one of the major things is you have to assure that you're measuring likes against likes. So you're measuring uh, against, if you're measuring something that's... Um, specular in other words uh, like a mirror you measure it against a mirror uh, if you're measuring something diffuse you measure it against something diffuse and uh, you want to keep your geometries the same if people if your standard is measured on a sphere uh, you have to measure what you want measured on a sphere um, if you're measuring at bidirectional 0 45 45 0 you measure those. You measure your uh, measure the stuff you need to measure at the same geometry. Okay, so you know you're summarizing it by saying same like type material yes. um, and also same geometry. Yes, exactly. All right, good. Well, that's valuable information, and we thank you, Art, for this very informative discussion on your work over these many decades, actually. 
I'm sure our audience has learned a lot about the challenges and details of standards and reference materials used in spectroscopic analysis. And your thoughts on this subject have been very stimulating. My thanks to all of our listeners and production and editing team that has worked hard to make this podcast possible. We invite our podcast audience to stay tuned to our next informative analytically speaking episode. And remember what Albert Einstein once said, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. <laughs>